You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Redecorating your house? Start with the Your Brain on Facts book. Perfect for the nightstand, the coffee table, or the bathroom. Get your copy of the book that launched at number one in historical reference. The Your Brain on Facts book. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. Small things can have reverberating effects on history, both good and bad. In 1453, the great walled city of Constantinople fell. It had withstood sieges for 1,100 years. It had held off fire from the then state-of-the-art cannons for weeks. The Byzantines had even thwarted soldiers trying to tunnel under the wall. Ottoman Turks were finally able to overrun the great city because someone left the door open. One of the many gates in the 14 miles of wall had been left open during the night, and the Ottomans flooded in, killing Constantine XI in the battle and bringing an end to the Eastern Roman Empire. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It was a freezing Christmas night in Trenton, New Jersey, during the Revolutionary War. The English colonel, Johann Gottlieb Rall, commander of a mercenary infantry regiment of 1,400 Hessian soldiers from Germany, sat down to a good supper and an evening of entertainment. He and his men were celebrating their recent victories over George Washington's volunteer army and, of course, the Christmas holiday. Safe from the bitter cold and the pelting sleet, inside a wealthy merchant's home that they had commandeered. They relaxed, safe in the assumption that no one in their right mind would possibly try to cross the Delaware River at night in a blinding winter storm. Someone challenged Rawl to a game of chess, and before long he was deep in tactics and strategy. There was a knock at the door. An exhausted young messenger boy came in bearing a note from a loyalist farmer, It's important to remember that about a third of colonists still considered themselves to be British and didn't want the revolution. Rawl paid the boy little notice, took the note, and put it in his coat pocket without opening it. That pocketed piece of paper would cost him and the war effort dearly. Two hours earlier and ten miles away, Washington's men had begun being ferried across the icy Delaware River. It took over 10 hours to get all 2,400 men over to the New Jersey side. The conditions were so adverse, five men froze to death. Then began the arduous march to Trenton in the dark. The plan had been to attack the town from all sides before dawn, but the troops didn't arrive until 8 a.m. During the attack, which lasted only an hour, 40 of the German Hessians were killed and the remaining thousand surrendered. Colonel Rawl was mortally wounded. When his body was found, the unopened note warning of Washington's crossing was still in his pocket. 
If Rawl had read it, he would surely have had his gross of professional soldiers prepared. He allowed his pride and the weather to lull him into thinking his enemy was not a threat. Had he won the battle, he may well have killed George Washington, James Madison, James Monroe, John Marshall, Aaron Burr, and Alexander Hamilton. The second most common premise in alternate history circles behind what if Germany won World War II is what if the South won the American Civil War. Two pieces of paper dropped in a farmer's field almost brought that about. Confederate General Robert E. Lee, whose statue in the middle of my hometown of Richmond, Virginia, has recently been given the historical context it so sorely needed, in the form of tons of graffiti, issued Special Order 191 during the Maryland Campaign before the Battle of Antietam. In the order, Lee divided his army, delineating the routes and roads to be taken and the timing for the units to reconvene. Adjutant Robert H. Chilton penned copies of the letter and endorsed them in Lee's name. Staff officers distributed the copies to various Confederate generals. General Thomas Stonewall Jackson in turn copied the document for one of his subordinates, Major General D.H. Hill, who was to exercise independent command as the rear guard. A Union soldier, Corporal Barton W. Mitchell of the 27th Indiana Volunteers, found two pieces of paper bundled with three cigars as he marched across a farm in Maryland, an area recently vacated by Hill and his men after they had camped there. The order provided the Union Army with valuable information concerning the Army of Northern Virginia's movements and campaign plans. Upon receiving Lee's lost order, Major General George McClellan, leading the Union Army of the Potomac, proclaimed, Here is a piece of paper with which, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. He immediately moved his army in hopes of foiling Lee's battle plans. When Lee heard a copy of Special Order 191 was missing, he knew his scattered army was vulnerable and rushed to reunite his units in Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg. Lee's troops arrived tired, hungry, and many were sick. The Battle of Antietam would go down as the bloodiest battle of the American Civil War, with casualties recorded as 23,000 dead, wounded, which was usually as good as dead, or unaccounted for over the course of the half-day battle. That's nearly 2,000 soldiers an hour, one every two seconds. When night fell, both sides ceased fire to gather their dead and wounded. The next day, Lee began the painstaking job of moving his ravaged troops back to Virginia. Here, some scholars argue, another solitary decision had far-reaching consequences. Despite having the advantage, McClellan allowed Lee to retreat without resistance. From his point of view, he'd accomplished his mission by forcing Lee's troops from Maryland and preventing a Confederate win on Union soil. President Lincoln, however, thought McClellan missed a great opportunity to potentially end the war three years earlier than it ultimately would. After the war-weary general repeatedly refused Lincoln's orders to pursue Lee's retreating troops, Lincoln sent him a letter saying, If you do not want to use the army, I would like to borrow it for a time. And eventually removed McClellan from command altogether. If you paid the slightest bit of attention in high school history, you probably know that the event that launched World War I was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. 
The assassination plot was formed by members of the Young Bosnia, a splinter group of the Black Hand Society, whose goal was uniting all of the territories with a South Slavic majority not ruled by either Serbia or Montenegro. They were incensed that the head of the oppressive state would come to Sarajevo for a parade on the anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo, which was one of their main rallying points. The Archduke and his wife were driven through the city, never knowing they were going past would-be assassins in an open-top car. Of the six young men who had conspired to kill the Archduke, two lost their nerve on the morning. One took pity on Duchess Sophie, the couple was also on holiday for their anniversary, and one had equipment failure. Nedeljko Kabrinovic, however, would not waste his chance. As the limo passed over a bridge, he hurled the bomb he was carrying. Perhaps from adrenaline, he threw it too hard, and the bomb sailed over the target car, detonating the car behind it, wounding 20 people, none of whom were the Archduke. The Archduke's car sped off. The last man stationed along the route, too far from the bridge to know what had happened, was Gavrilo Princip. Seeing that the Archduke was still alive and his comrades had failed, he became disheartened and slunk away. As he saw it, there was no chance he'd become an immortal hero to like-minded people that day. So he went out for a consolation snack. What Princip could not know was that shortly after the explosion, Franz Ferdinand ordered the motorcade to go to the hospital where the wounded were being taken. The car was driven by his regular chauffeur, not a local, and the change in route caused him to get lost, turning down a street they were never supposed to be on, directly in front of the cafe where Princip stood eating. The driver was in the middle of turning the car around when Princip leapt up and fired two shots that would ultimately kill 18 million people. What became of Kabrinovic, you might ask? He had to escape quickly, so he leapt over the side of the bridge into the river that was only a few inches deep. One leg was too badly injured for him to run, so in a defiant, you'll-never-take-me-alive act, he swallowed the cyanide pill each of the members of Young Bosnia had been given. This is where he learned that cyanide pills are not the sort of things you want to scrimp on. Rather than dying, he sat on the riverbank, vomiting violently as police came to arrest him. Why do I keep setting myself up with difficult pivots to make when my brain goes, they could have afforded good fresh cyanide if only they had patrons like my members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, and then the other part of my brain is like, no, no, don't say that. That's a terrible segue. But thank goodness I do have the support of the members over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts including our new members so far this month, Jennifer, Thomas, Brandy, Ronnie, Alyssa, Mrs. S. Herrera, and of course, Harley and Kayla, who join the very exclusive group of top-tier sponsors. Things will go back to normal with the rewards at the end of October, but for right now still, all levels get all rewards. So head on over to patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. And now, an abrupt shift in tone. One of the most murderous dictators of the 20th century, Joseph Stalin, had actually been an ally to the United States during World War II. The Grand Alliance, as it was called, was at best an uneasy union. 
It was an alliance born from the need to stop Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party from taking over all of Europe. President Franklin Roosevelt didn't trust Stalin, and the U.S. rejected the growing list of demands from the USSR between 1943 and 45. The USSR hadn't forgotten America's participation in the armed intervention against the Bolsheviks in the Russian Civil War, as well as its long refusal to recognize the Soviet Union as a legitimate country. Stalin was rightfully feared abroad and at home. The actual death toll of his regime will never truly be known. No one will dispute that it runs into the million. People disappeared for the slightest reason. Some were sent to gulags, prison camps where they would be worked or starved to death if they didn't freeze first, while others were executed on the spot. Stalin's senior officers, their homes and offices, bugged by the secret police, were all terrified of him. He refused to trade prisoners of war with Germany to get his own son back, a son he had mocked after a failed suicide attempt by saying he couldn't even shoot straight. Stalin even had his own personal physician jailed as a British spy after the doctor suggested maybe he take it a little easy in his later years. This and one other factor brought down an absolute tyrant. Stalin's personal guards were as frightened of him as anyone else. He had given them explicit instructions that he was not to be disturbed, except in the case of a state emergency. He didn't need to say on pain of death, it was kind of understood. So it came to pass on the morning of March 2, 1953, that the guards didn't go into Stalin's quarters, even as the clock ticked past the hour he would normally arise. By the time one of them mustered the courage to open Stalin's bedroom door that evening, Stalin had been laying on the floor, incapacitated by a stroke, for as long as 16 hours. He died a few days later, sealing his chapter of the often brutal history of Russia. To the east, in the Pacific theater of World War II, another tiny detail changed the course of history for every occupied continent of the globe. Most public school education and pop culture, such as video games and movies, focus on European battles, almost entirely ignoring the Pacific War. I can tell you from my own experience as a survivor of the American public school system that we were really keen on the European theater. All we really got on the Pacific theater was Pearl Harbor and the nukes. I don't remember ever having been told anything about what Japan did to China. And if you're not sure what I'm referring to, well, there's the problem. Anyway. The one thing from the Pacific Theater that I would lay money we were all taught, the attack on Pearl Harbor, saw American casualties of over 3,500 airmen and sailors, along with the loss of two destroyers and nearly 200 aircraft. And it actually went downhill from there. For the next six months, Japan dominated the Pacific skies with their A6M-0 fighters, winning nearly every battle against less experienced American pilots in technologically inferior planes. Attacks and occupations of China, which began in the 1930s, had killed between 15 and 20 million people. One out of every six American POWs taken after the fall of Singapore would die. It would take the loss of four aircraft carriers at the Battle of Midway, which saw 10 Marines killed for every Japanese combatant, to begin to push the Japanese forces back. Held near Berlin in July 1945, 
The Potsdam Conference was the last meeting of the big three heads of state. U.S. President Harry S. Truman, who had recently seceded Roosevelt upon his death, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin. They established a Council of Foreign Ministers and a Central Allied Control Council for Administration of Germany. Although talks centered primarily on post-war Europe, the Big Three also issued a declaration demanding unconditional surrender from Japan. After their terms were translated into Japanese, they waited anxiously for a reply from Japanese Prime Minister Kantaro Suzuki. The terms included a statement to the effect that any negative answer from Japan would invite prompt and utter destruction. Newspaper reporters in Tokyo pressed the Prime Minister to say something about Japan's position. No formal decision had been reached, and Suzuki replied, Moksatsu. The word moksatsu, derived from the word for silence, can be interpreted in several different ways. Suzuki meant it as the standard reporter brush-off, no comment. However, translators for media agencies in the West interpreted the word to mean that Suzuki was ignoring the surrender demand, that it was not worthy of comment, and he was treating it with silent contempt. The Americans took this reported arrogance to mean that there could never be a diplomatic end to the war. The atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima ten days later. The mistranslation of a single word helped to bring about the death of 70,000 people instantly and 100,000 more as the result of the destruction and radiation. In fairness, blame could be split between whoever decided to translate it as one meaning without considering another, or to the Prime Minister himself for using such an ambiguous term. Thankfully, I know some people who have a better way with words. Again, it's not a great segue. This is a hard episode to do those in. But I want to thank folks who have left reviews for the podcast recently, such as one from Trucker Matt. New favorite podcast, five stars. Heard Moxie on Hysteria 51. Great program, by the way. Gave her show a listen and was immediately hooked. Moxie's voice and delivery combined with the amount of facts she gets into a half-hour show and the facts themselves make for a show that's impossible not to binge the back catalog while waiting impatiently for the new episode. Moxie, you've got a listener for life, or as long as you do the podcast. P.S. How about a burlesque episode, since that's your background? Or is there one in the back episodes I haven't gotten to yet? Well, thank you for the kind words, Trucker Matt, and for following me over from Hysteria 51. I don't know why I haven't done an episode about burlesque, because I'm never shy about talking about it. I mean, for pity's sake, I produced the only George R.R. Martin-approved Game of Thrones burlesque show, and we got to play for the man himself. Which I need to stop bragging about, because it's been five years, and it's turning into the guy who still shows up at high school in his letterman jacket, even though he's 30. You know. But thanks to everyone who leaves reviews for the podcast, as well as for the book. Such as Ashley B., who said, I love her podcast, so I had to get the book, and I love it. It's a great read that keeps me interested and wanting to know more. Thank you, Ashley. That is exactly my goal. And Janet left possibly the most interesting review I've ever gotten on anything in my life. As entertaining as the podcast, full of fabulous facts from cover to cover. And what covers? They are kind of soft and slip-resistant. Was this by design? They are reassuring and lovely, just like Moxie's voice. I would recommend this book to anyone, especially if they read in the bath. 
Thank you, Janet, for extolling the tactile virtues of the book as well. I'm averaging about one review of the book per week. Those are rookie numbers. We got to get those numbers up. Do you think we could get to a hundred by the year anniversary? If you've read the book, whatever your honest thoughts are, head on over to Amazon or Goodreads and drop us a review, won't you? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology, and it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Airwave Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. On the topic of dealing with the press, as we were a few minutes ago, that can often be a sticky wicket. The conclusion of World War II saw Germany and its capital of Berlin split into East and West sections, with the West, controlled by America, Britain, and France, being capitalist, and the East, controlled by the USSR, being communist. And while we usually refer to them as East and West Germany, their official names were the Germanic Democratic Republic and the Federal Republic of Germany, respectively. Life in East Berlin was difficult, to say the least with the Soviets draining resources from the economy as a form of war reparations, and the secret police, with wiretaps and informants, always listening for dissent and disloyalty. As much as 20% of the East German population fled to the West before the government began to build the infamous wall in 1961, putting up over 100 miles of brick wall and barbed wire fence in a single night. The wall would eventually include spike strips, guard towers, and even landmines, as well as the demolition of nearby buildings to stop people from escaping by jumping from high windows. Contrary to how you may have pictured it, and definitely how I pictured it until about last year, the wall didn't bifurcate the city, but instead went around West Berlin. This is because the capital city was entirely within the country of East Germany, I know you would assume if you split a country and its capital into two, it must go right down the center, but no, Berlin was nowhere near the border. The term for this is an enclave, a portion of a state or country surrounded by another state or country. A passport, which was hard to obtain, was required to go from one side to the other, 
and people had to pass through one of three heavily guarded military checkpoints, designated Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. Families were divided, and people lost their livelihoods because their jobs were on the other side of the wall. Much in the way of a prison, soldiers patrolled the wall and shot on sight anyone who tried to go over, under, around, or through. While there were successful escapes in the nearly three decades the wall stood, many of which are utterly fascinating like the family who built their own hot air balloon, many people did lose their lives in the attempt. As time went on, the government began to grant people greater freedom of travel, but with near-prohibitive fees and tons of paperwork requirements, though these did not deter everyone. By 1989, the Cold War had thawed significantly, and there were sweeping changes in Eastern Bloc governments. Protests for democracy, free elections, and greater personal freedoms were gaining strength. The government tried to placate the citizens by making travel permits easier to obtain. This was announced at a live press conference by Gunter Schabowski, a low-level official in the Socialist Unity Party of Germany. At the press conference, he read a list of sundry announcements, but one, concerning passport, caught the reporter's attention. Schabowski said, in effect, that every East German would now be able to get a passport and go where they jolly well pleased, including to the West. A voice from the back of the room shouted, When does this take effect? Schabowski, caught off guard by the sudden interest, flipped through his papers and tossed out his best guess. Now, immediately. This statement hit the airwaves like a match touching a fuse. The citizenry did not know, or care, that the rule was meant to go into effect the next day, with a litany of fine print and restrictions. Tens of thousands of people descended on Checkpoint Charlie and the other crossing points to West Berlin. The East German border police, entirely surprised and severely outnumbered, no idea what was happening and no orders on how to respond to it, eventually just opened the gates. People poured through the checkpoint, while others on both sides began to climb the wall, sitting on top triumphantly. Someone showed up with a sledgehammer, and so the Berlin Wall, both the structure and what it stood for, came a-tumbling down. Germany was reunited less than a year later, and the Soviet Union dissolved soon after. This nation-changing moment could be viewed as a treatise on the importance of reading your notes in advance. Schabowski had been given the memo shortly before the press conference and had just skimmed it in the car on the way there. The single overarching characteristic of the Cold War, which held the world in a state of tension for over 40 years, was the imminent threat of a Third World War, one that would be fought not with planes and tanks, but with nuclear weapons, and would foreseeably be the final World War. This extinction-level event nearly began on the morning of September 26, 1983. An alarm sounded in Sherpakov 15, the secret command center outside Moscow, where the Soviet military monitored its early warning satellites over the United States. Five Minuteman intercontinental ballistic missiles had been launched from an American base, the computers warned. The timing could hardly have been worse. Three weeks earlier, the Soviets had shot down a Korean Airlines flight as it entered Soviet airspace, killing all 269 people on board, including a U.S. congressman. 
President Ronald Reagan had rejected calls for freezing the arms race, declaring the Soviet Union an evil empire. Soviet leader Yuri Andropov was obsessed with fears of an American attack. The critical link in the decision-making chain that day was one Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov. He was only two steps removed from the people who would advise Andropov to launch a retaliatory strike. His recommendation would have been received with little or no second-guessing. For five agonizing minutes, Petrov tried to assess the information that flooded in from computer screens, the telephone, and the intercom. Finally, he made his decision. The alert was probably a false alarm. He called headquarters and reported a system malfunction. If he was wrong, the first nuclear blast would hit within minutes. What did he base this world-saving call on? His gut. He had never fully trusted the early warning computer systems. Further, he suspected an attack that brazen would involve more than five missiles. His decision was actually a breach of protocol, and disobeying orders was not something taken lightly by the Soviet military. A later investigation concluded that Soviet satellites had mistakenly identified sunlight reflecting off clouds as the engines of intercontinental ballistic missiles. It would be some years before the incident came to light and people learned the name of the man who quite possibly saved the entire world with a phone call. Petrov received no rewards for his actions. This incident and other bugs in the missile detection system embarrassed his superiors and the influential scientists responsible for it. If he had been officially recognized, they would have to be punished. He was reassigned to a less sensitive post and took early retirement, eventually passing away at age 77 in 2017. Going back to the middle of the Cold War, and why is it anytime anyone references the Cold War, they always say, at the height of the Cold War, regardless of what year it is? We have Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dillon, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion. The Bay of Pigs invasion was a spectacular failure to invade Cuba by a brigade of former Cuban military officers backed by the CIA in April of 1961. In an attempt to undermine the communist-leaning government of Fidel Castro, the members of the 1,400-man paramilitary Brigade 2506 launched their attack from their training base in Guatemala, landing at Playa Giron in the Bahia de Cochinos. Apologies to Spanish-speaking listeners, I took French in high school. Overwhelmed by Castro's forces, the invaders surrendered less than three days later. But how did this tiny island nation rout American-backed forces? There were a number of mistakes and missteps, but arguably the linchpin error was that somebody forgot how time zones work. The original invasion plan called for two airstrikes against Cuban air bases, with forces disembarking under cover of darkness for a surprise attack. The main force would advance across the island to set up a defensive position. The United Revolutionary Front, a rebel army of anti-Castro exiles, planned to send leaders to establish a provisional government, provided, of course, the Cuban population joined the invaders in overthrowing the regime. The first mishap occurred on April 15th when eight bombers left Nicaragua to bomb Cuban airfields. 
the CIA had used obsolete World War II B-26 bombers, which missed many of their targets, and had painted them to look like Cuban Air Force planes, though the ruse fell apart when photos of the planes hit newspapers. On April 17th, Brigade 2506, hampered by bad weather and insufficient ammo, landed at beaches along the Bay of Pigs and immediately came under heavy fire. Cuban planes strafed the invaders, sank two escort ships, and destroyed half of the exile's air support. Over the next 24 hours, Castro ordered roughly 20,000 troops to advance on the beach, and the Cuban Air Force continued to control the skies. As the situation grew increasingly grim, President Kennedy authorized an air umbrella at dawn on April 19th. Six unmarked American fighter planes took off to help defend the brigade's B-26 aircraft, but the B-26s arrived an hour late. They took off from Nicaragua, which is GMT-6, headed for Cuba, which is GMT-5. No one had accounted for the loss of that hour when the attack was scheduled. They were shot down by the Cubans, and the invasion was crushed later that day. Well, at least the invasion didn't happen on Daylight Savings Weekend, or who knows what could have happened. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The failure was a blight for the American government, but a boon for the Cubans. Revolutionary leader Ernesto Che Guevara, since immortalized in the t-shirt collections of college freshmen alongside Charles Manson and Bob Marley, actually thanked White House advisor and speechwriter Richard Goodwin for the attack six months later at a conference at the Americas. As Goodwin recorded in a memo declassified in the 1990s, Chi went on to say that he wanted to thank us very much for the invasion, that it had been a great political victory for them, enabled them to consolidate, and transformed them from an aggrieved little country to an equal. After my recent guest spot on the Explores, I got inspired to bring some other voices into the show. Only one this week, but you've got to start somewhere, and where better than with... Brandon Schecksneider from Southern Gothic. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.